Discipleship Unplugged podcast. I'm your host, Darren Middleton, and I'm the teaching elder at North Geelong Prezi Church. This is season one and episode nine. Today, we're going to explore a reformed understanding of the new covenant. As we come to a close in our uh, series of covenant theology, is what we've learned so far. We've defined God's covenant with us as a bond of blood sovereignly administered. And we also recognize that in eternity past, there was this covenant between the triune God, we call the eternal covenant, and that all of the historical covenants flow out of that. In episodes four and five, we looked at the universal or the creational covenants that was made with Adam and Noah. And then in the episodes that followed, we looked at the covenant of promise which a particular covenant as opposed to a universal one, and that was made with Abraham and his seed. And then that was expanded on in the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants that would further prepare us for that prophet and priest and king to come. And so today we see how that all ties together in the promised new covenant. Now, we've seen that the promises that have been made to Abraham been expanded through the Mosaic and Davidic covenants. Essentially, they have enjoyed a fulfillment. Remember, we saw from 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20 to 21, that Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and all the way to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. But the reality was this fulfillment was but a shadow, and it was a shadow which has pointed to an even greater reality. And that reality is only ever filled in the new covenant because the Mosaic law was given, remember we saw this, as scaffolding for a system that actually required prophets, priests, and kings. The prophets spoke God's word. The kings enforced God's word. The priests forgave transgressions against God's word. But what what became very clear is that the old covenant was always temporary. Uh, Previously, we've used the metaphor of scaffolding. Paul uses a different metaphor in Galatians 3, verse 24, saying, The law was our guardian until Christ, in order that we might be justified by faith, as opposed to law. Uh, Hebrews 7.11 confirms that it was temporary. It says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? That is, the office of priesthood, the sacrifices. The the book of Hebrews tells us that these all pointed to Jesus. Because as Hebrews 7.24 says, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Likewise, Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 promises another prophet like Moses and that Israel should listen to him. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And of course, at the transfiguration, God says to the disciples, this is my son, listen 
to him. And as, of course, we saw last week, uh, David is, uh, Jesus is David's greatest son. There is the promised king who would do justice and righteousness and bring in that kingdom of God's peace or shalom, flourishing. And because of that, Israel never enjoyed, well, not fully, the shalom of the kingdom. And so as you follow Israel's history in one and two kings, what you realize is that uh, David Solomon, that's the high watermark in Israel, uh, even perhaps the early years of Solomon. But after that, the, the, the kingdom is in free fall. And of course, it divides after Solomon between the, the one and a half tribes and the ten and a half in the north. We're told that after Solomon, Jeroboam, who was then the king of the northern tribes, we read in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 16, it says that, that God will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam. And then what follows is a phrase that is repeated over 20 times about the kings of Israel, that the king, he sinned and made Israel to sin. That is, the king's sin, the king's disobedience, the king's covenant breaking meant that Israel, whom he represented, was made sin because he was their mediator. After Jeroboam, uh, in 1 Kings 15, 26, we see of his son, Nadab, that, that he walked in the way of his father, that is Jeroboam, and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. And then a few verses later, it says of, says of his son, Baash, walked in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. And then it says exactly the same thing about the kings of uh, Elah, Zimri, Omri, Ahab, etc. Time after time, they all walked in the ways of Jeroboam. They're all covenant-breaking kings, idol worshippers, and their sins as mediator. That's what made Israel to sin. Just like Adam made us to sin. So too the kings of Israel, through their sin, made Israel to sin. But it wasn't just that the, the mediators who failed. God's people themselves failed. God's people, what, what they really needed was a new heart. And Moses understood this right from the beginning. In Deuteronomy 29.4, he says, But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, when he's coming to the end of his life and he's speaking about Israel's uh, commitment to Yahweh through the covenant, he says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. The prophet Jeremiah also predicted a, a new covenant, a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 and following when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. But I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts 
and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Uh, If the old covenant is written in stone, as in the Mosaic law, the new covenant is written on hearts. So Ezekiel 36.26 says about the new covenant, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. When Jeremiah speaks about a new covenant, the Hebrew word there is a uh, hadash barit, which actually means uh, a refreshed, renewed, or repaired. Uh, it, it, it's used in 2 Chronicles 15, 8 of Asa, who repaired a temple. Or Psalm 51, verse 10, where David says, Renew a steadfast spirit within me. It's also used by Isaiah in uh, chapter 66, verse 22, when he speaks about a new heavens and a new earth. It's not that there will uh, be a totally new heaven, a new earth that we've never seen it before, but it's renewed, it's refreshed, it's 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 repaired almost, if you like. And so when the prophets speak about a new covenant, uh, the idea there is not something totally new that's never been heard of before, but rather a refreshed or a renewed covenant, which of course the New Testament refers to as a better covenant. Sort of like, you know, when you, you, you renovate a home and you remove all the scaffolding and it's been renovated, perhaps even ex- expanded. And, and when you look at that, you, you might rightly say, ah, oh, it's a new house. But it's not brand new. It's actually renewed or repaired or restored so that it looks and perhaps even feels new. And so it is with the new covenant. It points to a day when the mosaic scaffolding comes down and the mediators finally find their fulfillment in Christ. Because uh, God's promises of salvation do not change, but how they're administered over time certainly does. And so in this new covenant, the Lord promises the following. He says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And obviously, there's, there's nothing new about the Lord saying, I will be their God, they will be my people. This is what he said to Abraham in Genesis 17:7 when he made an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will be their God. They shall be my people, he says. The same promise was made to Moses in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Same promise just a different administration. You see, the newness of the new covenant, it's not in its promises or even in its membership. It's all still you and your offspring, but the difference is in the administration. It's not just that we no longer go through mediators like human prophets, priests and kings who know God's will or to do God's will or even to find God's grace. It's actually more than that. Because the promise is now what God will do is he'll put his law within us. He will write it on our hearts. How will this be done? How will this be administered? How will it be written on our hearts? Well, Ezekiel 36, 26 helps us here. Uh, Ezekiel says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. 
through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit after the priestly work of Jesus, our great high priest, is complete because there is a new covenant. And because of this new covenant, God will put his law within us and he will write it on our hearts. And he's going to do that by sending the Holy Spirit to indwell us with the result that not only will we have a desire, but also a power to do God's will and to serve him well. Of course, in the old covenant, the operations of the Spirit uh, were limited, not different per se, but, but they were limited. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon us and rushed upon us and fell upon and clothed or even entered people. But he never permanently indwelt someone. The same spirit that came upon Saul also departed Saul. The same spirit that rushed upon him at his anointing later left him. Now, obviously, I don't have time here to prove this. I'm, I'm just going to assert it. But from Adam to the apostles, we had about 15 men, primarily prophets, judges or kings. There was one unnamed musician, as well as the craftsmen who built the temple and the 70 elders of Israel. And that these men are said to have experienced the Spirit of God as he came upon, rushed upon, fell upon, clothed or entered them. Now, I'm also happy to acknowledge that there's probably certainly more. No doubt you could safely add all the prophets, including John the Baptist, given that we know that no prophecy has its origin in men. But while the Spirit came upon, rushed upon, fell upon, clothed, or even entered Old Testament folk and mediators, nowhere did he permanently indwell them. Now, do not misunderstand. We, we don't want to... Um, we often associate the indwelling of the Spirit of God with salvation, but rather indwelling is for service, not salvation. As Jesus said in John 14, 17, when promising another helper, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who now dwells with you, but he will dwell in you. Also note Jeremiah 31, 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they, you got to work out who they are, but for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the great, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And again, we're thinking through this, what's new about that? Well, there's nothing new about God forgiving his people. However, what is new is that they no longer shall each one teach his neighbor. And you're supposed to ask, who are these teachers in the old covenant? Who are these men who taught their brother Israelites? Because whoever those teachers are, they are no more in the new covenant. The newness of the new covenant is that these old covenant teachers, these old covenant mediators are no longer necessary in the new covenant. And surely it's a reference to the priesthood. No longer do God's people need priests, men who knew God and taught his people. You know, we often think of, I think, the Levitical priesthood almost entirely in the context of offering sacrifices at a tabernacle, which without doubt some did. But the vast majority of priests taught God's word to God's people. But now Christ has taught us. And Christ is our priest and our sacrifice who not only lives for us, but also dies for us. 
Hebrews 9.15 says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see, the newness of the new covenant is not in the promises that he will be our God and we will be his people, but actually in the administration of the covenant. So the shadows, the symbols, the types, the mediators, they're all gone. Christ has fulfilled them. He's now prophet, priest, and king. And because of that, he's also given us his Holy Spirit on his ascension as king to indwell us, to write God's law upon our hearts and to give us the power, not just the desire to do it. Remember, the promises are the same. God makes us his people. God forgives us our sins, but it's the administration that is different. Hebrews makes that so clear. Jesus makes it clear because he is that mediator of the new covenant because the new covenant is ultimately the fulfillment of the Abrahamic one. Mary understood this when she sang in Luke chapter 1, verse 54 to 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. In other words, she's saying these promises of the Messiah, the one who is to come, the one who is to save Israel, it's because you've remembered what you spoke to Abraham and to his offspring. Uh, Later on, a few verses later on in Luke 1, Zechariah testifies. He says, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us, in the house of his servant David, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. See the connection between the covenant promises and fulfillment. That's why Jesus says in Luke 22, verse 20, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That's why in Galatians 3, 8, we read, and the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And the newness, therefore, of the new covenant is actually seen in the administration, the sending forth of Christ and the pouring out of his spirit, that God would draw a people to himself, both Jew and Gentile, that the spirit would indwell them, that they might wear his name well and bear testimony to the nations and bring blessings to the world. Remember, Ezekiel says that Israel failed to bring glory among the nations under the old covenant. Thus, the promise and remedy of the new covenant is that I will pour my spirit within you and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's how God's people would bring glory to him. And so when uh, the... Apostles gather in Acts 15, and Peter speaks about the inclusion of the Gentiles in this new covenant. Uh, James goes on to say this, he says, about how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people to his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. 
Because the newness of new covenant is not promises. It's not even membership. It's always still believers and their children. The newness of the new covenant is quite evidently its administration. Now, because of this, because of this new covenant, this new mediator, no longer are we standing at a distance, no longer approaching through human mediators, no longer looking at animal sacrifices, wondering, is is that enough? But now, as Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Confidence that our high priest has died for us. Confidence that Christ as our king has kept covenant for us. Confidence that Christ as our prophet teaches us through his word and spirit and through that spirit indwells us to give us a heart that desires and has power to follow Jesus and honour him. Because now we're his people, empowered to live for him. As 1 Peter 2, 9 says, because you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvellous light. Because the newness of the new covenant, it's not its membership, it's not its promises, but it's in the administration, in Christ as our mediator, and the power through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that God's people might honour him in this world. This is Discipleship Unplugged, blessings and grace to you. Until next time, goodbye.